Amen. Amen. We're going to take your seats. Uh, Let me invite you to get your Bibles out. You can start making your way to Genesis 17 as we continue uh, to make our way through the book of Genesis. Genesis 17 is where we're going to be uh, this morning. And as you're making your way uh, to Genesis 17, I want to begin this morning uh, by asking you this question. Uh, Have you ever found yourself, ever found yourself in a situation where you were the recipient uh, of a gift and you were overwhelmed by the generosity of that person giving you said gift, where, where, where you found that the, the value of the gift um, or, or the investment, uh, the, the, the particularly meaningful nature of the gift blew you away at the overwhelming generosity uh, of that uh, gift. Uh, To the point maybe even where uh, you found yourself asking, why have I been given such an incredible gift? If you've ever been in that situation, then you'll be able to relate to what's going on in the text. And if you find yourself saying, I don't know that I've ever been in that situation, you're likely wrong and the text is going to reveal to you that you have in fact been the recipient of the greatest gift that's ever been offered uh, to all of humanity. Because here in Genesis 17, God is going to confirm His covenant uh, with these promises that He makes to Abram, um, but those promises will then produce these incredible and profound blessings. Uh, but is also going to call for our obedience. And so here's where God's Word is going to lead us this morning, uh, this idea right here, that God's covenant promises lead to our blessing and a call for our obedience. That God's covenant promises lead to our blessing and a call for our obedience. And so before we go any further, I think we'd do well to pause. Let's submit and surrender ourselves to the Lord, uh, and then we'll get into this text. Join me uh, as we pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful to you, Lord, uh, for your kind hand, your gracious hand to us. Father, we're thankful for your uh, incredible generosity, God, the gifts that you bestow upon your people. Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see uh, and ears to hear, hearts that would know and understand the fullness of your great gifts that you've granted to us. Uh, God, we ask that as we move through this text, Uh, that we would not only see, uh, but also find within us just a deep sense of gratitude uh, for all that you've done and all that you've given to us. God, as always, we want to pray for another church in the area this morning. God, praying for Cedar Springs and for Pastor Grant Blankenship. God, thank you uh, for that body of believers. God, we pray that you'd be moving and working in them uh, in the same way that we desire that you'd be moving and working within us. So God, would you come now and have your way in and amongst your people. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. All right, the title of the message this morning is God's covenant promises and our blessing. God's covenant promises and our blessing. And the main idea, let me just repeat it again, is that God's covenant promises lead to our blessing and a call for our obedience. And so as we come to chapter 17, uh, let's begin with this idea, looking at verses 1 through 8, we see God's promise of His covenant, God's promise of His covenant. Now, we're going to spend a a large portion of our time in these first eight verses because there's a number of significant and substantial items that are unfolding here in verses 1 through 8. God is reaffirming His covenant uh, to Abram uh, here at the beginning of chapter 17. So look at your Bibles 
And uh, let's just begin with this first line. When Abram was 99 years old, now we've got to stop for a second. He's 99, right? So he, he ain't young anymore. Uh, he's been around the block a couple times. But see, this is important because go back to the very end of chapter 16. It says that Abram was 86 years old when, right, and that's the end of what's going on in chapter 16. Here's, here's why I say this, right? 13 years, 13 years have elapsed since the end of chapter 16 and the beginning of chapter 17. Now, we don't know. We don't know if God has uh, spoken at different times to Abram and it hasn't been recorded. We don't know if God has said nothing for the last 13 years. Uh, but, but either way, 13 years is a long time, right? And just think of it like this. Where were you 13 years ago? I mean, some of you are like, I, I didn't even exist 13 years ago, right? It's a long time. A lot of life happens over the course of 13 years. And I say this because we, we do this weird thing with, with, with biblical characters where we tend to compress their lives, Right? We, we, we read the Bible and we move from one event to the next, and it feels as if biblical characters live this life where they are constantly experiencing from one moment of their life to the next this constant mountaintop experience. And we see that, or we, we wrongly see that, but we perceive that, and then what happens is we turn around and we look at our life and we go, I don't feel like my life operates that way. I feel like most of my life could be characterized in a very ordinary, very normal, very mundane existence. Like I, I, I do chores, I run errands, like most of my life, if the truth were known, it's just kind of boring. And we're like, what's wrong with me? Loved ones, biblical characters also live very normal, very mundane, ordinary lives. 13 years have passed, and there's nothing worthy of even jotting down. The point is this. Don't begrudge, do not begrudge the normal, ordinary, mundane faithfulness that God calls you to. Most of your life is going to be characterized in normal, ordinary, mundane living. 13 years have elapsed. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord God appeared to Abram, and he said to him, I am God Almighty, Walk before me and be blameless. I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Now, first of all, let me have you look here back towards uh, the, the verse one here where God refers to himself as God Almighty. God saying, I am the God who makes things happen by my power. And this name, God Almighty, which is El Shaddai, this is the name that God is going to use amongst the patriarchs. So, so, so Abraham will call God this, uh, Isaac will call God this, Jacob will call God El Shaddai. This is the name that they're going to be used. And I would suggest to us, this is a name we desperately need to recapture in our day and age, that we serve the God who is all-powerful. Loved ones, you and I serve almighty God himself. The question we have to wrestle with is, is, is this how you and I think of God. When you think of God, are you immediately reminded of his infinite power and his rule and his reign and his supremacy over all things? A.W. Tozer, in his, really his signature work of the knowledge of the holy, he writes right out of the gates. This is literally on page one of the book. He says this, were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes to your mind when you think about God? 
we might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. See, here's what Tozer's saying in this moment. He's saying, you tell me what you think about God, and I can tell you what your spiritual life is going to look like. See, he's saying the person who is convinced that God is, in fact, all-powerful, that God is, in fact, the Almighty God, is the person who is convinced that God uh, has ultimate rule, ultimate reign over all things, irregardless of what's going on right around that individual. It's wildly liberating and freeing. And, and, and it's a truth we need to recapture, right? To have a proper sense of God's power. Tozer later goes on and he says, the man who comes to a right belief about God is relieved of 10,000 temporal problems. And so could it be, could it be that the angst and the worry and the fear and the anxiety in your life, could it be, loved one, that you've lost sight of Almighty God? And his true power and his true authority and his true rule and his true reign. That might be our problem. And so, loved one, let God's word remind you in the same way that God is reminding and telling uh, Abram here in this moment, I am the almighty God and I'm to be followed in all things. Which is what God immediately moves into because look at what he says right after telling Abram, I'm almighty God. He says two things here at the end of verse 1. Walk before me and be blameless. Walk before me and be blameless. Now, this is God's call to covenant living. God here uh, gives a word that encompasses both uh, how we are to relate to God as well as how we're to conduct our lives before God. And this captures the whole of what it is to, to, to function in covenant with the Lord. First of all, that God's called to walk with him. Now, this has an aspect of obedience built into it, but it's highly relational in nature. That God calls us into relationship. And that relationship then dictates how we live. But we have to see that we're called into relationship with God. And God uses this word walk. I want you to walk before me. The word walk, that's a term that gets employed in both the Old and New Testament. uh, And it denotes this relationship with God. It speaks to the ongoing uh, nature of our relationship with God. And really the imagery is quite clear. Right? If you think about walking with someone, so if imagine if you and I were out walking together, right, side by side, we're out on a walk, th- th- there's a few things that immediately come to mind. Right? There's the sense that you and I are together. There, there, there's a sense that we're making progress or there's movement. There is dialogue or conversation that's going on between us. Right? All of which denotes this relationship that exists between us Uh, In that case, it would be you and I, or here, uh, between uh, Abram and the Lord. Here's the question to ask yourself. When you think about your relationship with God, does it reflect those elements? Is there a togetherness in your life with respect to you and the Lord? Do you look forward to spending time and being with God? Is there a sense of movement or of growth or progression or sanctification that's unfolding? Right? Are you hearing and speaking to the Lord and hearing from and letting God speak into your life? God calls us to walk with Him. Are we? Are you? Like God's called to walk with Him. But then notice what, what else He says here. He says, and be blameless. This is God's call to holiness. Now, now at one level, anytime the Bible, you see the Bible where it says, be holy or you're going to be blameless. I don't know about you, but my first response is always, I kind of, kind of clench and I kind of, and I kind of flinch because I know, well, that's, uh, that's not true. 
I, I can't, I can't, not that the Bible's not true, but I, I know that's not true of me. Right? I, I can never be blameless. And yet part of what this is doing, this is speaking to the standard expectation uh, that God has of anyone who would come before Him. So don't miss this. God's standard is perfection. And anything less is unacceptable. Which inside every single one of us, we should go, uh-oh, because uh, I don't meet that standard. Right? I, I, I know that, that, that I'm not blameless. There's plenty of blame within each and every one of us. Now in the gospel, right, in the atoning work of Jesus, the good news that we hold to is that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. Right? You and I have the righteousness of Jesus. When God looks at you, if you're in Christ, He sees the righteousness of Jesus. That's why you're reconciled. That's why you can stand before Him. But right, there's call to holiness, personal holiness. It's never intended to, to, to put us into God's favor. Right? At no point does God look and go, oh, you're holy. I think I like you now. That, 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 that's not how God operates. We're called to live in holiness because we want to be pleasing and honoring to the Lord. And so in our lives, we want to endeavor, we want to desire to be blameless and holy. This is a call that we should take seriously. Just ask yourself, is there any area in your life where you're casual, where you're flippant about sin? Are there areas of your life where you find humor or entertainment in things that the Lord wouldn't? Is there any thinking or any speech that goes on in you that's not befitting of King Jesus. God, help us that we would take serious this call of holiness. This is God's call to covenant living, which then leads into what we see here starting in verse 3. And we see God's gracious covenant promises. God's gracious covenant promises. I'll just tell you at the outset, there's a number of them. Uh, and I'm going to read this here. I'm going to read verses 3 uh, to 8 to us here in just a moment. But as I do, I want you to just mentally make note of the variety of the promises and the nature by which these promises come. Just pay particular attention to, to who is initiating and driving what we see here in the text. Verse 3, then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations." I'll make you exceedingly fruitful, and I'll make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I'll establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Do you notice all the I have and I will statements? That come from God. I have done this. I will do this. God's driving all of this. God is initiating and doing everything that we see here. Further, uh, hopefully you noted just this abundance of God's grace and God's generosity that comes to uh, Abraham here. God is wildly generous. And and this right here, remember at the outset we talked about that, that overwhelming gift? This right here, loved ones, is what I'm talking about. So here, let's just make note of the different promises that God makes, well, to Abram and then Abraham in the process. Here's the first. He says that you're going to be the father of many nations. In fact, he says this in three different ways uh, through verses 4 through 6. Verse 4, you should be the father uh, of a multitude of nations. Verse 5, he changes his name right? Because I have made you a father of the multitude of nations. Verse 6, I will make you into nations. 
And so God's saying, not, not only are you going to be a father, not only are you going to be a father of an entire nation, you are going to father nations, plural. And right in the middle of this, God changes Abram's name to Abraham. See, in the ancient world, in the ancient world, the name of an individual was far more than just a title or a designation to be able to tell people apart. Uh, it, it was wildly instructive to the very core and the essence of the person. In fact, at times, it spoke or, or denoted the destiny of that individual, right? And so in the Bible, when you see names changed, when you, when you see a name change, it's connected to a transformation of that person's character or of that person's destiny. So Jacob will become Israel later in the book of Genesis because of the 12 tribes. Simon becomes Peter, right? Petra, rock, that, that, that God is doing some cool things in the New Testament through. Saul becomes Paul because his, his character is entirely transformed by God. See, this is alluding to a coming change that God is going to accomplish. But not only does it speak to this change of character or destiny, naming is also an authoritative act. Those who have authority, name those that belong to them. Parents, name a child. Families, name a pet. If you're the first to show up in a physical place, you, you get to name that destination. Right? That there's an authoritative element to this. So, so, so think for a moment, like, like let's just imagine that we were doing a baby dedication this morning, right? and this family comes up. And, and they've got their little son, and, and they're so proud. It's their first child, and they come up, and they're like, this is our son, Caleb. Now, how weird would it be if I was like, yeah, your parents called you Caleb. We're going to start calling you Timothy. Like, that'd just be weird, right? Because I don't have the authority to do that. That belongs to mom and dad. You see, part of what God's doing in this moment, he's reminding Abram, who has now become Abraham, and we're going to see it a few verses later with Sarai, who's going to become Sarah, God's reminding them, no, I'm sovereign over you, and I am the one who controls your destiny. And part of my control of your destiny is that you're going to be the father of a multitude of nations. But that's not the only promise he makes. Look at what he goes on to say. Verse 6, he says, you're going to be exceedingly fruitful. Right now, fruitful, you see that word fruitful. It's hard to see the word fruitful, particularly in Genesis, and not think back to Genesis 1. Right? Be fruitful and multiply. God's, God's promise there in creation. God's blessing, I'm sorry, in creation. And then the exceedingly, that, that, that evokes that multiply language that we see in Exodus 1 when God takes this family and, and moves them into being a nation, the fulfillment of what God is promising here. This is part of God's blessing to Abraham. He's going to be exceedingly fruitful. And then thirdly, look at what else he says in verse 6. He says, I'll make you into nations and kings shall come from you. It's going to be kingly. Right? Royalty is actually in view here. And it's not hard to think of, of this kingly or royal element that, that plays out in the line of Abraham. You think later in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 49, it talks about the scepter of Judah, right? The scepter being an instrument that belongs to a king. And of course, we know that's eventually pointing us forward to Christ. But maybe a, a, an even better example of this is when you get to the very beginning of the New Testament, right? Matthew's gospel, which begins with the genealogy. And at the beginning of that genealogy, it, it tells us this, that Jesus was the son of David, right? King David who was the son of Abraham. Right? The entire genealogy is framed around these three individuals, and it denotes the, the, the kingly dimension of Jesus. 
and that it's ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Part of this promise that God is making here is fulfilled in the royal, kingly reality of Jesus. We see an additional promise in verse 7. It says, I'll establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. It's multi-generational. This is not going to expire with Abraham. It's not going to expire with Isaac. It's going to continue. In fact, think about, I mean, how many things in your life and in my life expire the moment we die? There's a lot of things that, that, that are no longer valid the moment you and I die. And yet, this promise is going to extend through multiple generations. Tied to that, we see here that it's an everlasting covenant. It's eternal. It's eternal. You think of God's covenant to David in 2 Samuel 7, right? This eternal throne. Here's what I think is fascinating about this particular promise. When you, when you get to the New Testament, believers in the New Testament in a variety of places are referred to as the offspring of Abraham. Right? You see it in Romans 4, you see it in Galatians 4. Actually, I've never seen this before. I was reading in Luke 19 this morning, right? It was Zacchaeus. And Jesus refers to Zacchaeus as a child of Abraham. And he's not talking about a genealogical descendant. He's talking about a spiritual descendant that comes from him, right? All over the place in the New Testament, we're referred to as the offspring of Abraham. And yet, don't miss, here's what I think is so fascinating, is loved ones, that you and I, we're actually part of this fulfillment. We're part of the fulfillment in the multi-generational dimension. We're part of the fulfillment in this eternal uh, dimension. Because today, as we are the offspring of Abraham, and we are the offspring because of faith in Jesus, we know that we're going to live in Christ for all of eternity. And so you and I, actually serve as a part of the fulfillment of what God is promising back here in Genesis 17. And then you get this final promise that comes from God. It says, I'll give to you and your offspring, uh, verse 8, I'll give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. I think I'm going to give you land. Right? Both offspring and land are in view. Now, now, as you look at these promises, right, you see these different promises. That, that exist, all the different ways, all the different promises that God is making, this is an overwhelming amount of God's good and kind gifts that are bestowed on Abraham. It's purely of God's grace. It's purely of God's kindness uh, from God to him. And loved ones, what I would argue is that this right here is actually reflective of the abundant grace and the abundant generosity that you and I experience in Christ. Because I want you to think about the covenant promises that are ours in Jesus. Think about what you and I bring to the table with respect to Christ. What do we bring? We just bring sin. Like our contribution is our failure and defiance and rebellion. We're like, all right, God, here's what I got. Now his response, right, God's response to that, well, Jesus dies in our place appeasing God's wrath. You and I are literally spared from the wrath and the destruction that we deserve. We are given the unconditional and unwavering forgiveness and love of God through Jesus. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. We are adopted as sons and daughters. We have an eternal inheritance that is ours. The Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us and dwells within us. See, God's covenant promise is met with God's excessive generosity. 
God's doing the whole thing. You and I literally only brought our sin, and God's like, okay, here's, here's my side of this. Right? All these I have, I will statements. It's purely of God's grace. So let me ask you, can you see, can you see in your life the abundance and the generosity of God to you? The overwhelming gift. Like, why am I the recipient of this? We don't deserve it. But God has so graciously placed it upon us. And so given that, given that, will you, as God has said here, will you choose to walk with Him? And will you choose to live in His call of holiness? This is God's promise of His covenant. Let me make one other note here real quick before we move on. I want you to go back to verse 1. I am Almighty God. Right? God's saying, hey, I'm the all-powerful God. And then look at how He bookends this section. And I will be there, God. The all-powerful all-consuming. I mean, it's crazy windy out there. If God spoke, it stops. If you go out there and speak, you're getting blown over. But the all-powerful God is inviting, personally inviting Abraham into his family. Loved one, aren't you thankful and aren't you grateful that the all-powerful God chooses to know and walk with you and I? How can we not marvel at such an incredible grace and such an overwhelming gift. That's promise of His covenant. Man, praise God for this. Which leads then to what is unequivocally the most awkward and painful part of the passage this morning, uh, where we get to talk about circumcision. I'm sure you were thrilled to talk about that when you came to church this morning, uh, but that's where we find ourselves, because starting in verse 9, we see God's sign of His covenant. Look at what it says. Uh, it says this, and God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who's not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So God gives this sign. Right, the sign of this covenant. And the sign, admittedly, right, we're kind of like, of all the signs, like that was the one. Right, you're just kind of like, you couldn't come up with something else. Right, it's kind of odd. It's kind of awkward. And yet, a couple things that are worth noting. First of all, in, in, in covenants, it was common for it to be associated with some kind of sign, some kind of marker. Uh, and that sign really served a couple purposes, purposes. First of all, it was a reminder. Right? It reminded those in the covenant that they belonged to the covenant. But it was also a marker to everyone else that they belonged to the covenant. So let me give us a, a contemporary example that I think all of us will understand. Uh, unequivocally, the most common sign in our day and age is a wedding ring. Right? Th th this, now this ring, is, this is not my marriage. And it's not your marriage. It is a sign of your marriage. This ring does uh, multiple things. One, it reminds uh, whoever wears it that you're committed to the person that you made vows to. 
So I'll actually do this thing sometimes where I'll kind of play with my ring, and, and, and it's almost this intentional reminder, no, I'm committed to my wife. Like, I made a commitment to my wife. But it also marks the fact that I'm committed to my wife. If you see, there's like, oh, he's committed to his wife. It's not the covenant. It's simply a sign of the covenant. I hope the roof doesn't come off. I mean, it's like crazy out there. It was beautiful at 8 a.m. this morning. Not anymore. Um, But, I lost my place. Where am I? Hold on. Okay. Thinking of covenants, you, you have different examples in the Bible. So we've seen the rainbow, right, back in, in Genesis 9 with, with Noah. The rainbow is not the covenant, it's a sign of the covenant. So when we see the rainbow, what we're reminded of is the promise God's never going to flood the earth. We, we see New Testament uh, examples of this, right? The, the cross is a sign of God's covenant. Baptism is a sign of God's covenant. And they both remind uh, as well as mark God's people. In fact, Paul tells us this uh, in Colossians chapter 2. Flip over there real quick. I just want you to see this here real quick. Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 11 because here Paul uses circumcision and all that it entails in the Old Testament, and he's going to connect it to baptism. He says, in him, starting in verse 11 of Colossians 2, in him also, he's talking about in Jesus, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. See, in, in, in the New Testament, God takes this, this, the, the sign of the covenant, circumcision, and now He's using it to speak to the spiritual state of the people. And He's saying when your hearts are circumcised, that faith is the response and obedience is the evidence uh, that, 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 that you and I belong to the Lord. And in Colossians 2, particularly, obedience to be baptized uh, in, in the Lord. So, when we look at this covenant, right, the sign of this covenant, right, we're reminded, and it's a marker. Now, two, two items that need to be noted here uh, that have uh, implication and bearing for us. First of all, make note of this with respect to the sign, uh, God's permanency in His covenant. Notice the permanency in God's covenant. Circumcision is an irreversible act. Once you make those cuts, right, there, there, there's no going back. This is not like painting your nails. And if you don't like how it turns out, you can just rip them off. This is, this is, this is lasting. It's, it's binding. It's enduring. It's permanent. Well, God says in verse 13, it's everlasting. Which, by the way, is God's point. See, there's, there's actually a comfort and an encouragement in this that the permanency of God's covenant reminds us that we're forever bound to the Lord, that, that, that our standing is fixed, that it's permanent, that it's irrevocable. Loved ones, that's good news. That's great news. That means you and I can't screw this thing up. See, it also reminds us, God, God's not going to get bored with us. God, God's not going to get to this place where He's fed up with us. God's not like, man, I, I can't wait till I can just be done and walk away from these, these knuckleheads. No, we're forever fixed to Him and held by Him. 
That's what's being reinforced in verse 13. It's an everlasting covenant, which Jesus actually does something similar in John 10 when he's talking about being the good shepherd. In John 10, Jesus is talking about being the good shepherd, and and he says this, John 10, starting in verse 27, he says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you're going to live forever because I'm going to hold you forever. That's the whole point. God knows what he's signing up for. The permanency of the physical markings of the covenant is meant to remind us of the permanency of the covenant itself, that we're forever held by God. And I would say, praise God for that. Does that not comfort you? Like, doesn't that comfort you to know? Like, we, we, we can't, I can't mess this up. It's a great comfort. I mean, in moments where I fail miserably, when I choose sin instead of righteousness, when I fail to live in faith, when, when I respond poorly, which thankfully only happens all the time, I'm reminded of the fact. I'm reminded of the fact. No, no. It's permanent. Beloved, when you can take heart knowing that God's covenant is fixed. God is unwavering, which is great news for the rest of us who definitely waver in our faith. God's permanency in His covenant, but then notice also this, God's exclusion for refusing His covenant. Look at verse 14. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. It's a clear Uh, And yet it's also a very striking word. God's saying, if you refuse the covenant, you're excluded. If you refuse the covenant, you're cut off. There's no room in God's economy for rebellion or defiance. If you refuse to participate in the covenant, you you, you are removed from it. You've broken it. You're outside of it. Think of it this way. God determines the way. And you and I don't get to alter, we don't get to modify, we don't get to adjust, we don't get to revise His plan. And as you think about that, don't forget this, there are no concessions or exceptions to the rule. You will either do it God's way or you're out. That's it. There is, by by its very nature, a very exclusive element to this. And the exclusion of God is not simply an Old Testament thing. It is a biblical thing. Because Jesus was demonstrably exclusive in John 14 when he rightly stated, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. What does he say next? Tell me. No one. (laughs) Did you hear that? No No one. Not not everyone except me. No one comes to the Father Father except through me. me. Jesus lays there, he's like, there's only one way. There's no alternatives. There's no exceptions. There's no second route. Like I think it's the grace of God that he speaks so candidly about such significant matters because no one's helped by tiptoeing around this. God's unmistakably clear in Genesis 17. Jesus is unmistakably clear in John 14. Let me just try to be really clear and to the point. If you are here and you're not a believer in Jesus, we're so glad that you're here. We're so glad that you've chosen to worship with us. Here's what you must know. You are not the exception. The rules are not going to get bent for you. 
right? You are not going to get a free pass. If you refuse the Lord, you're going to be cut off. Simply put, if you refuse the Lord, you're going to be cut off. And there's only one remedy to that. It's the remedy that Jesus has already told us. It's to yield and surrender yourself to him. Right, to believe that Jesus died in your place to atone for your sin and to spare you from the wrath that you deserved when you rebelled against God. And so don't delude yourself because you are not the exception. And so we would implore you, we would beg of you, we would plead with you that you would not harden your heart towards God's gracious invitation, but instead that you would humbly embrace Uh, the free gift that God offers, the fullness of Christ that you would repent and that you would trust in him. That's a sign of his covenant. Which leads then to some blessings that fall to some of the other characters that we've seen over these last number of chapters. What we see in verses 15 to 21 is God's undeserved blessing in his covenant. This is God's undeserved blessing. Now, Now to be fair, Abraham doesn't deserve any of God's blessings either. Uh, But the characters that we see in verses 15 to 21 are going to receive a blessing really in spite of themselves. Sarai has lacked faith. Ishmael will not believe the promise. Isaac isn't even born yet. And yet all of them remarkably receive this incredible grace and blessing from God. Look at what it says. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be your name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. And Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Yep, it's happening. Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Wait for it, because it's coming. And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And he just doesn't get it. He's like, Oh, no, no. How about Ishmael? And God's like, Nope. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I'll establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I've heard you. Behold, I've blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I'll make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So this is God's undeserved blessings. We see it in each of these characters. First of all, make note of God's uh, blessing to Sarah, right? Her name is changed from Sarai to Sarah, right? Meaning princess. And essentially what God's saying is the divine dynasty is going to come from Sarah herself. Sarah, it's going to come from you. Your own child, your own heir is going to be the one that's going to bring forth the divine dynasty. No surrogates, no shortcuts needed. You're going to be given a son, right? Whereas she had schemed uh, to try to produce a son, uh, she's going to be given a legitimate heir, And then you see this blessing language, right? Twice in verse 16, uh, God says, I will bless her. Now, now blessing language is significant throughout the book of Genesis. It's it's one of the structural markers in the book of Genesis, right? Creation was blessed. Uh, Noah was blessed. Abraham was blessed. Later in the book, uh, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph will be blessed. But here, it's Sarah. Sarah's the one who's blessed. God's saying, you're not some random bystander. You're an intentional player in the royal lineage that God's creating. None of it is deserved. None of it is earned. I mean, truthfully, if anything, she should be excluded. And yet this is God's undeserved blessing. But she's not the only one that that's true of. We see with Isaac. Isaac, right? He's going to have this everlasting covenant extended to him. He's not even born. 
He's not even conceived at this point. The only one that even knows of him is God. Yet the infinite goodness of God to extend that to Isaac. And then maybe the most surprising one of all is what we see for Ishmael. We've talked about how Ishmael is really a shadow of the true, the true promise. We know he won't live in the promise. He won't live in faith. That'll be demonstrated in the coming chapters. And yet, notice the blessing that God extends, extends to him. He, he both says, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful and multiply him. Right? Echoing Genesis 1 and that blessing language. Even though he won't adhere to the promise, he's still going to be the recipient of God's blessing. That's phenomenal grace. None of these individuals deserve God's blessing, yet it's freely bestowed through the generous and gracious act of God. And so when you look at these figures, right, you look at these different characters, and we, we, we do this thing where we'll read the Bible and we want to identify with characters in the story. So if you want to identify with a character in the story, 15 to 21 is the place where you and I would identify with the characters. You and I might be like Sarah, who want to scheme our own way to whatever God has. And even in spite of that, we're still blessed by God. You and I might be like Ishmael, right? A wild donkey of a man. And yet in spite of all that, we're still blessed by God. You and I might be Isaac. We've literally done nothing. And yet we're still blessed by God. It's the same for us, right? We're the beneficiaries of God's incredible grace that we did nothing to deserve. And so don't forget While you and I don't deserve God's blessing, we have richly received God's full and abundant blessing. God has given us far more than we deserve, and we should praise God for that. And so we get to the end of the account, which really speaks to our response to everything that we've seen here. It's been pretty one-sided up to this point. Uh, And so here we see the response. This is where we respond all that God Uh, has done. If you look at verses 22 to 27, here it is. It's our response of obedience to the Lord. Our response of obedience to the Lord. Here's what it says. Verse 22, when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house, or, or bought with his money every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house, and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. This is Abraham's response, and simply put, he obeyed. In fact, two, two responses, two aspects to his response that are demonstrated by Abraham, uh, helpful for us that have bearing on our lives, Uh, with respect to obedience. Uh, Here they are. Here's the first. Obedience responds immediately to the Lord. Obedience responds immediately to the Lord. You see that phrase? On that very day, as God said to him at the end of verse 23. No delay, no waiting, just immediate obedience. But when God calls you to something, obey right away. Obey right away. No, No delaying, no deferment, no waiting. Immediate obedience. Is that us? Do we obey immediately? Here's the second thing. Obedience responds in totality to the Lord. Right? Multiple times we see this phrase, and all the men. There was a comprehensive, there was a total sense of this obedience. 
It wasn't partial. It wasn't limited. It was complete. It was full. Is that us? Do I obey in totality? I'm sure when, if you've had young kids, you've probably had some kind of statement that you use uh, with your children at different times. I know we have. We actually have one we still use with Ellie. But when, particularly with her, although sometimes we have to do it with our older children as well. Right, Davis? Uh, but, uh, but, but there's this statement where we'll, we'll say, did you obey right away and did you obey all the way? Did you obey right away and did you obey all the way? See, that's really what is being demonstrated for us right here in the text. That's the question we should be asking ourselves before the Lord. Did I obey right away and did I obey all the way? Our response should be that of obedience right away and all the way to whatever it is that God is calling us to. God's covenant promises lead to our blessing and a call for obedience. And as we consider the promises that produce our blessing, let us be people who gratefully and excitedly respond in obedience. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do thank you. God, we're so thankful for your phenomenal and remarkable grace to us. Father, we're thankful uh, for the, the gifts that you so generously give. God, we pray. God, we pray you'd help us to see it. God, that you'd help us to believe it. God, that we would know it, that we would trust it in its fullness. God, we ask that you would help us to marvel at your grace and your incredible kindness to us. And God, that part of our response would be to obey. God, would you help us to obey? Would you help us to do what you call us to do? And God, even in saying that, God, we thank you that in the ways that we will inevitably fail, that Jesus has always obeyed perfectly in our place. And so we thank you even for that, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.